fairy tales. We love happy endings. We love when the hero saves the day, when we see resolution, restoration, resurrection. And the story of Easter is a happy ending. We knew that on Friday, right? We gave the spoiler alert. We knew Sunday was coming. But undeniably, when we think about Good Friday, there is a massive valley before we get to the mountaintop. That Jesus, God's own son, would come to save humanity and they would kill him. Just think about that for a second. Jesus comes, save the day, and they kill him. Imagine the next Marvel movie, that was the plot line. It'd be crazy, I don't know, it'd be nuts. So-and-so comes onto the scene, and they just think he's the enemy. They think he's the bad guy. That's not the story I would have written. But it's Easter Sunday. And so what we proclaim this Sunday and every Sunday is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose victorious over death itself. He died so that we wouldn't have to, ultimately. We will physically die, yes, but the resurrection gives us absolute hope for the future. That's what we remember today. That the same God who rose Jesus from the dead promises to give us eternal life with him if we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That is our hope this day and every day. That is what we celebrate and remember this Easter. That Jesus took my place. He took on the sin that I deserved and defeated the one thing I stood no chance of defeating on my own, which was death itself. And so that is the story where, yes, there is a valley, a big valley. But it all comes out. It's almost like we could think it is a fairy tale. It all, you know, they all lived happily ever after. Well, if that's the story and we all live happily ever after, how come, well, maybe I don't always feel like it's a happily ever, happily, I'm living happily ever after. Why isn't it happily ever after for you? Even if you're a Christian here this morning, you may be thinking, right on, Aaron, I'm with you. Easter Sunday, celebrating Christ is risen. You're saying that with your mouth, you're saying that with your head, but if you're honest, you're saying life is far from a fairy tale. And if I'm really honest, I don't even feel like God's that close to me at all right now. Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. Maybe that's the place that you're coming from. And so friend, before we even dive in to the word this morning, I want you to take comfort that there are large portions of the Bible that talk like this. That it's not all sunshine and rainbows. They echo this feeling. Because the reality is that what Christ has done for us when he died and rose is the best news you could ever know but we still face dark times. We still face hard days. And so we need to be well rehearsed in these portions of the Bible, portions of the Bible like Psalm 13, where we'll be spending time this morning. And we need to be reassured that even in the dark, that God still has dealt bountifully with us. That's the hope that we have this Easter. That's the hope that we have every day. And so our big idea 
In Psalm 13, even in the dark, God has dealt bountifully with me. And I want you to hold on to that the whole way through. Because again, you might be here this morning and be coming from a place where things are pretty good. You know, maybe you're like, hey, it's, you know, sun's shining, life's good, got a good job, got a good family. Peachy, right? Smooth sailing. That's good. That's Praise the Lord. I hope life is good. And you might look at a psalm like Psalm 13 and be like, why are we talking about Psalm 13 on Easter Sunday? Why are we talking about Psalm 13 when I'm feeling pretty good? It might feel distant. It might even feel a little bit overdramatic when you read David's words. But friend, you need this psalm. You need this psalm to fill your emotional repertoire with the highs and lows that we see in this psalm and the highs and lows that you will know in this life. But then again, you might be here and you might be looking at Psalm 13 and thinking, how did they get that page out of my journal and get it into the Bible? You might really resonate with the desperation and the feeling of brokenness and darkness that we see in Psalm 13. You might know the sting of trial. You might know the burden of difficulty. And so, friend, I hope that this prayer is an encouragement to you this morning, that you find hope, deep hope. Because Psalm 13 is God's word for us each this morning. And so, would you turn there if you have a Bible? Psalm chapter 13, it's just a short one, only six little verses. If you're not familiar with the Bible... The book of Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible. There's 150 chapters. And so if you just split it in half, you most likely will hit it. But lean a little to the left, and then you'll get it. Psalm 13, we'll be reading through. And if you don't own a Bible, you, don't, you can certainly go grab one now. But we have Bibles over on the table over there. If on your way out, you want to go grab one, that's yours to keep. We would love for you to have one if you don't have a Bible. So let's hear Psalm 13, verses 1 to 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. few important observations just before we dive into Psalm 13 that I think is helpful. Just to sort of set the stage, nowhere through the whole psalm do we get a hint that whatever is driving David to despair ever gets resolved. I think this matters a lot because the context of the whole psalm is darkness. And you're right in observing it. It ends with praise and joy. It ends with hope. Like our big idea, even in the dark, God has dealt bountifully with him. But the message of Psalm 13 is not that, you know, life stinks, but then circumstances will change. That's not the message of Psalm 13. Life is not a fairy tale. But 
a helpful reminder as we work through this psalm that even though the circumstances don't change, he still lands where he lands. And so keep that in mind as we work through. And as we look at this psalm structurally, Alec McTeer described, by the way, if you ever see a book by Alec McTeer, just buy it. It's, it's worth it, I guarantee. You take, you have my word, okay? Alec McTeer, he describes the psalm with this arc. He says, agitation is brought to the place of intercession and emerges with exaltation. Say that again. There's a lot of synonyms there. Agitation is brought into the place of intercession and emerges in exaltation. Agitation, verse 1 and 2, is brought into the place of intercession, verses 3 and 4, and emerges with exaltation. And so we're going to use that same framework as we work through this psalm this morning, looking at these three sections of two verses each. And I want to look at them from just slightly different words. Verses 1 and 2, I want us to consider the questions in the dark. Verses 3 and 4, I want to look at the requests in the dark. And verses 5 and 6, I want to look at trust in the dark. Questions, requests, and trust. So first, questions. Right away in verses 1 and 2, David asks four questions that all start the same way. They all start with how long. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? And how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These are real questions from a dark place. And these are questions that might make us cringe a little bit. You know, especially if you're coming in here on your good day, you're like, yeah, life's good. Jeez, what? Can you ask God that? Maybe our instinct is to be like, David, man, pump the brakes, backpedal, right? Remember who you're talking to. There's a lot of reasons why I appreciate that there are prayers like this in the Bible. Because if prayers are just praise and thanks, praise and thanks are good. But if they're just praise and thanks, we wouldn't have words for these dark times. Because there are lots of places in the Bible that tell us what to pray for. But the Psalms give us words for how to pray. This is an honest prayer of desperation. Whatever the circumstances that prompted David to pray this prayer, to pen these words, could not have generated a prayer of, Lord, I, I just want to just, you know, thank you for just, you know, amen. That, that wouldn't be the prayer from David. And don't hear me wrong. We don't get gold stars for eloquent, beautiful, poetic prayers. We don't get gold stars for smoothness we don't even get gold stars for grittiness you know we don't get awarded for you know really daring at all but sometimes it takes the storms of life to get real with god and again it's good to see that god saw fit to have these kinds of prayers in scripture another guy you should buy every book you see by him Derek kidner says this the very presence of these prayers in scripture is a witness to god's understanding God knows how men speak when they are desperate. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. And so I'm sure you've heard parents that have said something along these lines before. I would not be happy if my child got into big trouble. You know, maybe my teen is rebelling. I wouldn't like it if they were in trouble, but I would want them to call me. Right, you've heard that before? 
God wants you to call on him, even when, and especially when you're feeling these kinds of broken, dark feelings. We're not fooling him by hiding. He knows our heart. And so what does David feel here in these four how long questions that he asks? What is he asking? What is he saying? What do we see about his heart? He says, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's, he's saying, I feel forgotten. I feel abandoned. I feel alone. So he's lonely. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? So he's feeling anxious. Some of you know that feeling. Your tires are spinning. You're worried. You're taking counsel in your own soul. You're just stewing. Right? You're marinating in your own thoughts. It's anxiety. And then depression. He sees sorrow in his heart all the day. And he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's feeling defeated. And so what is David going through in this moment? We don't know the circumstances, but what he's feeling in Psalm 13 is loneliness, anxiety, depression, and defeat. Loneliness, anxiety, depression, and defeat. Does this feel relevant to you? David is not saying, hey, God, you know, remember me? Yeah, David, you know, that's, yeah, that's me. No, that's not what he's saying. He's crying out to God. Alec Mateer again observes that this is multifaceted despair. There's spiritual despair. He's saying, has God forgotten me? There's personal despair, inward wrestling and sorrow, and there's circumstantial despair. He's saying there's some dominant opponents against me here. But notice what David is not saying. David is not saying, you have forgotten me. He's not saying you have hidden your face from me. He's not saying you have abandoned me, that my enemy has won. That's not what he's saying. The question he asks to preface each of these things is how long? And so we could read that this is just saturated in doubt. And maybe this flickers of that to prompt him to ask these questions. But he is resting in who God is. He's still going to God. And he's resting in God's promises. So right now things are looking pretty bleak, pretty dark. And what's he saying? Saying, how long? So asking how long God will wait to act is different than complaining that he's not acting at all. And so I wonder, if you can think through your life, have you asked these kinds of questions? Have you been waiting and said, God, you are still God. I am still coming to you. You've told me you're going to do something, but how long are you going to wait? How long, O oh Lord, will I have to wait for this prayer I've been praying to be answered? How long will I have to wait for this decision to become clear? How long will I have to wait for the disease to be gone? How long will I have to wait for the pregnancy to happen? How long will I have to wait for my friend or family member that I love and I, I care deeply about to trust in Christ? How long do I have to wait for the depression and anxiety to be gone? Maybe not even be gone, just be bearable. How long, O Lord? That's the central question that David asks in the dark. And very closely related to these pleading questions from the dark, we move into the next two verses, which are requests from the dark. And you might be thinking, Aaron, questions and requests are kind of the same thing. Gave me a second point there. Well, they are kind of the same thing. But they're a little bit different here. There's at least some kind of different category. Because what is he saying? 
in verses 3 and 4, saying, consider, answer me, light up my eyes. What's he saying? These questions are becoming much more pointed. They're no longer how long. They're saying, God, act now. I need you to act now in light of these questions I just asked. Asked. You can look at the parallels as you work through this passage. He's saying, how long have you forgotten me forever? Verse 1. And what does he say in verse 3? Consider and answer me. Look in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow? In verse 3, he asks that question more pointedly. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Again, back to verse 2. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? And in verse 4, God, act for your own sake. Or else my enemy will say they've prevailed over me. They'll rejoice because I am shaken. This is how we pray for God to act. And what David's not saying, he's not saying do this or else. He's not giving God an ultimatum. He's saying, God, you've said you'd you'd be there for me. I need you now. God, you've said you'd light up my eyes. God, I need that now. God, I know that you've promised to work for my good and for your glory, but it feels like I'm being defeated, that I'm being undermined by my opponents. I trust you, but I need help. So are your prayers grounded in the promises of God? And Christian, do you know God's word, the promises that he's given us, us well enough to pray these kinds of prayers? Or are we kind of just stabbing in the dark? Because in the dark, these are the only kinds of prayers we can pray. And we need to pray them. God wants us to pray them. He wants us to come and, and tell us. He knows the state of our hearts. He knows what we're bringing And so if we need to ask how long, we ask how long. If we need to say, God, you you said you'd do this. I don't understand. I need you to do it. That's what we need to do. But if we're in the dark, how do we typically respond? I think there's three different ways. I mean, there's more subcategories to this, but I think there's three ways we would typically respond in this moment. Maybe from the dark, you feel abandoned, and so you withdraw. You say, God feels far away, therefore he must be far away. And since he's God and I'm not, I must have done something wrong. I must not be good enough. Friend, don't let self-condemnation lead you to paralysis and self-despair. Cry out to God even if it's not pretty. Cry out to God to act in ways that are in line with his character and the promises of his word. So that's one response, withdrawal. Another response, maybe you respond to the dark by denying that God even exists. If he feels far away, well, he must not be there at all. Maybe that's you here this morning. Friend, the sun still exists at night even when you can't see it. So don't give up so easily. If you feel alone, you can cry out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It may not seem like it, but that is worlds apart from shutting God out because you feel alone. And then the third response is what I believe David is doing here. He's calling out. He's clearly in the dark. He's feeling all kinds of emotions and frustrations even. But he's waiting on God and he trusts in his promises. And this may look different for different people, but we see David land there eventually. Again, he hasn't undermined God throughout this whole section even though he asks deep questions in the darkness. 
but he hasn't forgotten the promises of God, and so he requests God to act in the darkness. And this becomes even clearer as we get to our third and final section, to trust in the dark. Trust in the dark. Look again with me at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. As we've worked through these sections up to this point, you may be wrestling and even a little bit skeptical. You're like, right on. It's, I get it. I get it in theory, Aaron, but it doesn't work this way. You don't work through these massive questions, and in a second, you're just like, well, I guess, yeah, I guess I trust you. You're kind of right. We can't solve all of our problems in a 30-second poem. But the reason why this isn't a pipe dream is because David really believes it. He really believes it. All the fears and doubts and even impatience are answered in these last few very dense verses. There's a lot going on here. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is so much more than just believing truths in your head. This is believing truths in your heart. If you rely only on intellectual wrestling, I don't think you'll get past verse 4. You may ask the big, bold questions. Will you forget me forever? You may say, God, listen, act, do something. But you'll, that's where you'll stop. This is deep, experienced, felt trust. Deep, experienced, felt faith. It's grounded. I heard a pastor tell a story of a friend I don't remember what his friend's name was, but we'll call him Kevin. His friend Kevin hated wearing seatbelts. Every time they got in the car together, he'd be like, Kevin, put your seatbelt on. And Kevin would be like, I don't need a seatbelt. And he explained to him, you know, seatbelts are meant to hold you in, the, in your seat, in the car. They're important. Seatbelts save lives. And Kevin would be like, right, I, I know. You sold me every time we get in the car together. But I don't need to wear a seatbelt. All of a sudden, this guy sees Kevin again, and Kevin's wearing a seatbelt. Like, Kevin, what happened? Why did you start wearing a seatbelt? And Kevin says, oh, I just got back from the hospital. I just was visiting my friend who was in a car accident. He went through the windshield, and his head is full of stitches, and he's got a bunch of broken bones. So now I'm going to wear a seatbelt. The facts didn't change for Kevin. He knew seatbelts saved lives before, and he knew that it would keep you from getting tossed out of the vehicle. But all of a sudden, it made more sense to wear a seatbelt. All of a sudden, even though the facts didn't change, the experience of the facts changed. He went from head knowledge to heart knowledge when he saw his friend in that hospital bed. And so if we are looking at the story of Easter, if we're looking at the story of the gospel, if we're looking at the Bible, and it's simply hinging on facts. When the storms come, we're not going to be able to echo verses 5 and 6. Because, remember, we have no indication here that the situation actually changed for David. The circumstances could have ended just as bleak as they started. But all of a sudden, it made sense for him to trust in the steadfast love of God. All of a sudden... While he was still in the dark, it made sense to praise God for how bountifully he had dealt with him. 
The facts didn't change, but his trust was grounded in more than the facts. And so don't let this discourage you. Because maybe you're kind of there, you're like, yeah, I've, I've been, I, you know, maybe I've even grown up in church. I know the facts. Or maybe I've heard it a hundred times. My friend keeps telling me about it. But I don't feel it. Well, don't be discouraged because this faith is a gift from God. Look at how David describes it. He says, but I, David, have trusted. So there is an active element there in your steadfast love. There it is. The strength of his faith was not the determining factor. It was the object of his faith that was the determining factor. And what was the object of his faith? God's steadfast love. We've talked about this word before, God's hesed. Dan, give it to me with some growl. Chesed, yes, right? That's a, we don't know, need to know a lot of Hebrews to read the Old Testament, but that's one word that's worth knowing. We've looked at this word before, and so much more is wrapped up in this word than just love. Because this idea we have of love is, is such a broad thing. I mean, I love my wife, and I love ketchup. You know, those are two very different things. But this is so much more. This is not even just like categories of the word love. This is like a bigger, broader thing. When we see the word hesed, or in the, at least in the ESV, translated steadfast love, we see that this is a word that's grounded in covenant love, in covenant faithfulness. Covenants are a huge part of the Bible, a huge part of the culture at the time. Kids, we've talked about this before. Covenants are like just super big promises. Like the biggest promise you could ever imagine. I don't know how to say it better than that. The biggest promise you've ever made. A promise that no matter what, I'll never break it. That's a, that's a covenantal promise. You know, it's not like a conditional warranty. You know, we will replace your phone if you only use it on Tuesdays with your left hand. You know, and it's above 10 degrees. I mean, that, that's not, that's, that's conditional, major condition. This was the biggest kind of promise that could ever be made. And throughout the Bible, God makes these covenants where he says, I promise, I commit to do this for you. And these massive promises he makes over and over to his people. And that's what we talked about on Friday. That God makes big promises. The claims of Christianity are big and bold. I won't deny it. And we talked about how promises only count when they're kept. Well, God keeps his promises. He always did. He always does, and he always will. This covenant love, this promise keeping, this hope is all wrapped up in this word hesed, where David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's what he's grounding himself in. He's not saying, I, I have trusted in you know, your circumstantial love. I have trusted in your conditional love. No, he's saying, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And so that's what David grounds himself in. He's crying out to God. Again, he's saying, how long will you stand far away? How long do I need to dwell in this anxiety? How long do I need to suffer all day, every day? How long am I going to feel defeated? God, listen. Answer me. Light up my eyes before I die, before my enemy prevails and rejoices because I'm shaken to the core. But I have 
trusted in your promise-making, promise-keeping, covenantal love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing because you dealt bountifully with me. This is more than religion and tradition. This is trust in something that's far greater than any vice, any crutch, any tonic, any escape, any relief that we could ever ask for or even imagine. And so the question we need to ask, what's going on with David? How did he get here? How has God dealt bountifully with him? What do we say? He's lonely, anxious, depressed, and defeated. How is that bountiful dealing? And we need to ask that question, both to know what's going on with David and to know in our own lives, how do I get to verses 5 and 6? How do I get there in the dark? Well, friends, from our vantage point, and particularly unequally, we have an even clearer picture of God's covenant faithfulness, his, the promises that he's made and the promises that he's kept. Because God's steadfast love and bountiful dealing is most perfectly demonstrated when even though our sin and rebellion separates us from a perfect and holy God, he would send his son into the world to give us life. And how does he do that? By giving his life for us. That's what we remember on Good Friday. That's what we remember on Easter. That he didn't just die. He did die. He took on the weight of our sin. He took on the worst physical torture that could be inflicted at the time, but more than the physical torture that he felt, he took on the weight of the world's sin. And remember, Jesus was sinless. Just like two magnets, two of the strongest magnets you could ever imagine, God in his perfect holiness and sin and all of its vileness met at the cross. Because Jesus was perfect, yet he took on the filth of the world. Every bad thought you've ever thought, every bad deed you've ever done, that is the hope of the gospel. And he didn't just take it on and then, oh, what happened to that Jesus guy? No, he rose on the third day. He defeated death itself. He defeated sin. He did what we could never do. And he did that so that in that moment when he took on our sin, he took our place. He subbed out for us. He said, put me in, coach. I want to switch places with him. I want to switch places with her. I want to take on their sin so that they can put on my righteousness. That's a crazy deal when you think about it. But it's the best possible hope we could ever have. That is the absolute hope of the gospel. That if we would just turn from our sin, say, I'm done with that. I'm done with that rebellion. I'm done with that life. And I'm going to trust in Christ and his righteousness. That's the best news in the world. That's why we talk about the gospel all the time. What does gospel mean? It's good news. That is good news. That is the good news of salvation. And it's how, even in the dark, we can have hope. It's how we can know that God hasn't stood far away. It's how we know that we haven't been forgotten because he didn't stand far away. We might feel like he's far away, but when we couldn't reach up to him, we couldn't do enough good to save ourselves, what did he do? He came to us. So there are times when we will feel alone. And there are times when we'll cry out to God, how long? But we, like David, can rest in the covenant promises, the steadfast love of God. We can rest in the hope of the gospel, the good news that proclaims that Jesus didn't forget you forever. 
He hasn't forgotten you even for a second. You aren't an afterthought. You are precious. And you were on his mind when he took those lashes that tore open his back. You were on his mind when he was spit on and mocked. You were on his mind when he took the nails through his hands and feet. You were on his mind when he took on your sin. And so when you cry out to him, the gospel means that we can hold up our hands and we can trust that his pierced hands will reach down and offer us life. Because he has defeated death. So what does this mean? Well, I can just get this out of the way. It doesn't mean all your problems will go away. If you're not a Christian and you're thinking about what this means, you're like, that sounds like a good deal. It doesn't mean all your problems are going to go. But it will take care of the biggest problem you face, which is your own sin. That's what separates you and me and everybody from God apart from Christ. And so circumstances may not change. You still may be having to trust in the dark. But at least you have something to trust in. That's the hope of the gospel. It's resting in the fact that he took on the ultimate darkness so that you wouldn't have to. It's resting in the fact that he was forgotten so that you would only have to feel forgotten. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have that kind of hope, let today be the day that you rest in this hope of salvation, real hope, steadfast love that is beyond words, that circumstances could be good or bad, but that same hope is the same. If you want to talk more about this, nothing would make me happier than to talk with you about this after the service, or whoever invited you, talk to them after the service. Because there is real hope. There is real hope beyond what you could ever know. And Christian, this is a prayer we need. Psalm 13, write this prayer on your heart. Train your mind, and more importantly, train your heart to rehearse these verses, whether you're in the good times or the bad times, so that you're ready for when the storms do come. You can say, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he, even in the dark, has still dealt bountifully with me. He's still given me more than I've ever deserved. He has dealt bountifully with you, brother and sister. He will continue to deal bountifully with you, even in the dark. And we wait for Christ's return when our faith will be turned to sight and darkness will be no more. The fairy tale story isn't over. There is real, eternal hope. When the promise is that every tear will be wiped away, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. But until then, we need to trust in his steadfast love that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. We can rejoice in the salvation that was accomplished in Christ alone. And so friends, let's respond this morning by singing and proclaiming this truth that we really do have a hope. We really do have a savior. He's not dead. He is alive. That's our hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that shows us that we can come to you with broken and open hearts. 
that we can ask you questions like, how long until you do what you said you would do? And that you hear us and you know us and you don't love us any less, even if our prayers tread into dangerous territory. God, I thank you for your love that is so perfectly demonstrated in the fact that when you knew we couldn't save ourselves, you stretched out your own arm, your own hand to pull us up. You sent your own son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, and rise victoriously so that we could have hope. God, these claims are crazy. They feel crazy to say and to think about God. Help us to have faith in this hope. Help us to rest in your promises. And God, we thank you that Psalm 13 doesn't end at verse 4, but that we have an example of what it means to trust in your steadfast love, what it means to trust in a Savior. God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, would you work in their heart so that they could find a real hope. And God, for all of us, as we sing words like, in Christ alone my hope is found. Lord, would you help us that those would not just be mumbly lyrics that come out of our mouths, but that that would be a bold proclamation of the hope that we have, the eternal hope that we have. That he stands in victory sin's curse has lost its grip on me that we are his and he is ours that we have been bought with the precious blood of christ i thank you for these glorious truths and the privilege we have to proclaim them and the privilege we have to be called your sons and daughters in jesus name we pray amen